as I read through the book of the Bible, I, I want to preach what I'm learning. And so that's my typical fashion. So this is really different for me to, to, to pick out a series and, and go through one series after another. But the last one, I'll give you an insight of kind of what the, what the year looks like for us and actually going into next year, is I picked seven, not seven, I, I, I picked a series of sevens. And, and in fact, in my mind, I'm thinking coming up sevens, you know, the, the number seven all the way through Scripture has some significance. Now, we're not numerolo- numerologists, don't, don't hear me saying that. It's not that, not that we think that, uh, we can tell the end times because we read numbers. I, that, that's taking it way too far. But there is obviously patterns in Scripture. And the number seven is one of those patterns that we see when God completes something and does something in, in completion or perfection. He does it with the number seven. And so that's why we, why we look at it the way we do. And in our last series, we looked at the seven sabbatical festivals of the Israelites, and we looked at that as a call to worship, a a call for us to worship in all of life, not just in moments of days, and not just in moments during days, but all day, every day, to live in a posture of worship. And now we're going to turn, and we're going to look at the seven signs of the Messiah uh, in in the book of John, entitled this series, Here's Your Sign. And I, I promised my wife I wouldn't get up every week and tell a stupid, here's your sign joke. So, you can think about them, and if, if you know what I'm talking about, then, then you know. It's probably better if I don't. But I made that promise, and so I'm just going to move, move on. We'll just move past that. But as we look at these signs, what you'll see is in, in Leviticus chapter 23, God just assumes his worthiness of worship. It, it just assumes that God is worthy to be worshipped because he's what he's done in their life and who he is to the Israelites. And here in the seven signs of the Christ and the seven signs that point to the Messiah, we're going to see Jesus as our reason for worshiping this God. And so it, 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 it ties together. And from here, we'll move to his seven sayings of the cross and then the seven churches of, of Revelation and a beautiful way to work through his worthiness of worship, our requirement or responsibility to worship, the reason why we worship in the signs of the Christ. The, the, the cost or the price that he paid in the seven sayings on the cross and then the seven churches of Revelation, what it looks like to live in response to him. That's kind of where we're going through this, this whole thing. And this, this next seven weeks, we're actually going to take a break for Christmas, but the next seven weeks of this series will be all pointing to the Messiah and, and who he is and what he's done for us. And so I hope that you will stay with us and, 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 and just continue to learn in this Well, in his gospel, John specifically chose seven miracles to share, and he calls them signs. Signs are important because they tell us something. They give us information. And for for some signs, it's like, you know, if you're you're driving down 65 South and you're headed towards Branson, you're going to see Yakov Smirnoff signs and I I don't know what all else, magician signs and all kinds of things. And if you're going to Branson, those signs may be relevant to you. They may mean something. I'm needing a show to go to. I, I need a good a good, I don't know, country western laugh, you know. I need something. And, and so you don't even have to make a plan. You can just drive down 65 South. And you can, and before you get to where you're going, you can, oh, I know where I'm going. I'm going to go watch a Russian guy act like a cowboy and be silly and it's going to make me laugh and I'm going to feel great. Then it's relevant to you. Otherwise, you pass those signs every day and they don't mean anything to you. 
For example, there used to be a sign that said at Glenstone in 65, and it was a beer sign, but it was using uh, a female figure to sell beer. And I thought, how, how irrelevant to me. It doesn't mean a thing to me, except that it's drawing me to a place where my mind shouldn't be going anyway. Why would they do that to us? Because they want us to buy, your, buy their beer. Well, I don't like beer. So it's an unrelevant piece of information. I just I began to ignore it. And the reality is, is that some signs aren't meant to be ignored. Imagine if you were driving on National at the James River exit and they didn't give you any signs that they had changed their regular intersections to that diverging diamond. Man, that would be bad, right? You see, the reality is, is that the signs that John gave us in the gospel are those kind of signs. They're life and death signs. They're signs that we need to pay attention to. They're signs that mean something important. And if we miss them, if we ignore them, if we brush past them as if it's another Yakov Smirnoff sign, we are going to miss the beauty and the depth and majesty of our Messiah. See, these are important. And so we're going to take the next seven weeks to spend time just looking at them and digging on them and understanding what they have to say to us. And the first one is in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Jesus makes the best wine. And I think it shocked everyone. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, I'm going to stop there just real quick and just explain this to you. Jesus had, had just barely begun his public ministry. He had been introduced to the world by John the Baptist. John had seen him and he said, oh, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That intrigued a couple of John's disciples and they followed Jesus. And they sat with Jesus and they learned from Jesus. And they got up and they went and told people. And about this time, John, Jesus had about four disciples. There was about four people that were following him. And so Jesus and these four men were at this wedding. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water become wine... And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely, when, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, it seems like any, any, any of the contemporary people that I looked at, it seems like many of the contemporary people that I looked at that spoke on this passage built their doctrine or a view of their, their philosophy of alcohol from this passage. It, it, some people want to say, well, Jesus made wine, and so it's okay for us to drink. And some people try to dig into the Greek and twist the, the words around and say, well, he wasn't really making alcoholic wine. He was making new wine, which isn't fermented, which isn't going to make you drunk. And so it's really just grape juice. And the reality is, is that building a doctrine of alcohol from Jesus turning water to wine is like going to an amusement park and not being amused. 
It's, it's missing the whole point of what Jesus is doing. It's totally overlooking that Jesus had something bigger here. He had, he had something that he was doing, and he wanted people to see, but, but it wasn't that, hey, it's okay to drink, or no, I'm, I'm not allowing you to drink. You can just drink grape juice. It's trying to make something out of this that it wasn't intended to be. But John tells us, he doesn't leave any room for a question. He doesn't, let us, he doesn't leave us worrying about it. He doesn't leave a room for us to question it or, or, or be confused about it. He tells us in verse 11 exactly why Jesus did this. Jesus changed water to wine to reveal his glory and so that his disciples could believe. And, and John is really good about this. All the way through the, the, the gospel of John, you can see this, and you can look at the stories and, and, and the ways that he shared them, and you can see this. He demonstrates Jesus doing something, and he paints a picture. It's almost as if he's a camera guy, and he's, he's revealing to us, and he's shooting Jesus, and he's showing us Jesus' action and Jesus' life. And then he pans the camera, and he looks at the people that watched it, and we get to see their response. Jesus did this to manifest his glory, and he did it so that people would believe in him. He, that was his purpose, not to give us some, some comfort in alcohol or, or, or a defense against it. In fact, all the way through, John, I told you, he, he book, bookends his, his letter or his gospel in this way. In John 1.14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's chapter 1. We've seen his glory. God showed us his glory. And then in closing, he writes in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe. You see, these two ideas, they go hand in hand. God gives and demonstrates glory. And he calls us to respond. He calls us to believe. And in this particular instance, the first miracle is done on such a small scale. I mean, think about this. Jesus didn't do this in front of all of the wedding participants. He didn't do this in front of the whole crowd that had gathered to celebrate. He did it in front of his disciples and a few servants. How in the world does turning water into wine bring God glory? How, how does this miracle give Jesus glory? It's such a small thing. It's, it's, such, it's such a small audience. And see, God doesn't depend on us and the size of our audience and the size of the, the, the group to reveal his glory. He doesn't depend on us for his glory at all. His glory stands alone. But Jesus did this so that these particular people would see and they would recognize his glory. It's really this question, how does turning water into wine, it's really this question that's going to frame the rest of our ser the sermon. Because I think that we can see four things and see four points of his glory. First, I think we see Jesus reveal his glory by demonstrating his authority. In verses 3 through 5, you see something in every commentator, every preacher, everyone deals with this. Because for us, it's kind of difficult to read and understand it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a cultural thing. We, we hear the way Jesus talked to Mary, and we think, whoa, man, that's pretty bold. Woman, what does this have to do with me? If I said that to my mom, 
Yeah, see, she's there. She knows how she would feel. She knows what she would think. What if you said this to your mom? Here's something. I, I, I tease around with Amy, and this is a little bit different relationship, but I tease with Amy sometimes, and I say, hey, woman. Man, that's always a point where I know if I'm not joking and say that, it's a big deal. But for him, for Jesus to say this, this is not, this is not something that, that's, that's crude or, or harsh or rude in any way. It's, it's a common, polite way to greet. And he called her woman, though. He didn't say mom. He said woman, man. And, and we see him begin to build a distance. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. And every time he says this in John, every time he says that and refers to his hour in the book of John, he is referring to the time that he is going to be crucified, the time he's going to hang on the cross. And he's speaking about, he's speaking to her and he's saying, woman, my hour, the, the time, the purpose for which I ultimately came, it's not here. And what I think we see happening here is Jesus demonstrating his authority. There's a whole view there's a whole view, and, and you can study this in Roman Catholicism, there's a whole view that, that this is establishing Mary as the one who intercedes with Jesus for our sin. But the difficulty with that perspective is that in the next sign that we go to, it's not Mary interceding and, and asking for Jesus to work, it's a boy's father. And so oh, what we can see is certainly we have a place that we can go and we can ask and we can, and we can present requests. And Mary did that. Mary knew Jesus. Mary knew he had power to do something. She'd seen him. In fact, if you read the, the, the story of his birth and his life, over and over it says that she stored those things up in her heart. You see, Jesus, was, he was building a distance he was, he was helping Mary see that she, like everyone else, would have to come to a place where she submitted to him in his authority as opposed to being the one who was going to call the shots for his ministry. Woman, why are you bringing this to me? And what does she do? Do whatever he says. We would do well. We would do well to, to learn and, and th this point, to learn to submit to the authority of Christ as Mary learned to submit to his authority. We would do well in life if we recognize that Jesus is the one that calls the shots and he doesn't bow to our will. He's the one who has the mission, who has the purpose, who has been given authority from the sovereign God. He's the one who it all rests on, who, who has the say. And we would do well to recognize it's his authority and ours to submit to. Well, Mary, she gives it to him. She says, do whatever he's going to, whatever he tells you. And then after verses 3 through 5, you see Jesus. I mean, he, he doesn't give them something that I would expect they expected. He, he doesn't give them a list of tasks the to go pick some grapes and let's go ahead and stomp them and let's go ahead and get the juice and try and do a, a hurry-up fermentation process. He, he doesn't give them those instructions. He doesn't open his money purse and give them money to run down to the come-and-go and get a couple of boxes of wine to bring back to the party. He doesn't do that. 
isn't that what we'd expect? Hey, we're out of wine. We'll go get some more. No, Jesus says, hey, get those jars of water. Fill them to the brim. Can you imagine what these people are thinking? But Mary set the example. Submit to his authority. So Jesus reveals his glory by demonstrating his authority. But then we'd also see that Jesus reveals his glory by unveiling his ability and his duty. These are two points in one, really. I don't know what those servants thought as they filled those, those purification jars. They're about 20 gallons, 20 or 30 gallons big. And I'll just tell you, it wasn't like they ran to the tap. They didn't go inside. They didn't run to the backyard and get a hose and pull it to the front and fill them. They, they were going to wells, and they were drawing water out of wells, and they were carrying water to the jars. That's how they got water. It wasn't like, don't, don't think this is an easy task, and there's time for them to think. What in the world is he having us do? Why does he need this water? Well, Jesus revealed his ability. The moment that they drew out of it, and that water was no longer water, but it was wine. Can you imagine the amazement, the awe that they felt? And this was no, this was no, uh, this was no magic trick. It wasn't like it wasn't like mind freak. The guy that does mind freak had shown up and done and pulled some quick, easy trick. It wasn't some illusion. These people had put the water in the jars and knew that it was water. And they draw it out, and it's wine. Imagine the power that, that does not bend or, or, or submit itself to any natural law. He changed the chemical composition that quick. And the likelihood is it was fermented. Ask some of our home brewers how long it takes to make, a, uh, make beer and to, to walk it through its fermentation process. The likelihood is that this went to being the best of wines that fast. Ask our wine tasters today, what's the best wine? Is it the bottle that you get, Strawberry Hill, that was made a couple months ago, or is it the stuff that's set for years? See, that's the good stuff. In an instant. He changed it, and he made a wine that when that headmaster, when the, when the master of the ceremonies tasted it, he was so moved by it. This is the best wine. And he's so struck by it that he sends for the bridegroom. Oh, his ability, his power. But the beauty of God's power is, is that he doesn't use it just flippantly nonchalantly. It's not that God just does these things. Oh, watch how I fool him this time. Watch how I, I, I'm going to shock him with this. There's purpose in it. You, you guys, I'm sure most of you have seen Spider-Man, and one of the big lines out of that first Spider-Man movie is, with great power comes great responsibility. Oh, what a good line, right? I mean, that strikes at the core of every guy that has a sense of duty in his life. I, I can tell you as a person coming out of the military, that oh, man, that pumps me up. But the beauty of God is, is that he doesn't need someone to tell him that. 
His power He uses us to fill His purpose, fulfill His purposes, to do His will, to, to make His plan come to pass. Jesus was sent here for a purpose. He had a duty that He had been sent to complete, to fulfill, a, a duty to do. He had a purpose, a mission. And his power, in that act of power, he wasn't just doing it just to demonstrate, hey, they're going to like me now. Nah, he did it with purpose. It's no mistake that Jesus chose these purification jars full of water. It was no, no accident that, that oh, you know, these will work. There was purpose. You see, and I've experienced this recently in Africa, that one of the things that I got to see when I was in Africa was as they would prepare to go into the mosque, they would stop and they'd wash themselves. And it's Muslim people. It's a slightly different religion, obviously. But many of the traditions, the ideas and the perspectives, there, I saw them work themselves out. And every day they would have five times that they'd go to the mosque and pray, those that are religious. And they would stop before they'd go in, and they'd stop and they'd wash their hands, and they had these little jugs of water that were set out, and they'd wash their hands and make themselves clean before they went into the mosque. And that's exactly what these jars were for. There was a wedding ceremony, part of the ceremonial tradition that these people had to follow their religious rites and their religious traditions was to cleanse themselves with water. And I love the words of John the Baptist because he says that, you know, the... the I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming is going to baptize you with fire. But the beauty of this is, is that Jesus didn't, he didn't just come to, to sanctify us in the fire. He came to cleanse us with his blood. And when that water was changed to wine, it was, it was demonstrating that there is a new covenant, a new work that's being done. The water symbolizes purification. The water certainly points to it and is a type and a shadow of what's to come. But that wine, oh man, you, you, know, you know the story of wine and Jesus' blood. I mean, every time we take communion, we celebrate this. It's a direct representation. Jesus came with power to cleanse and to make us new, to wash us white as snow, not from the outside, never touching the inside, but by his blood, his precious blood, precious as silver and gold from the inside out that we are made clean through and through. You see, this is his power revealed and his power put into mission and action. He did this for this purpose to show this is who he was and why he had come. I don't know exactly what these disciples believed in that moment. I don't know how they responded exactly and what, their, what, what exactly it was that it says they were believing. But you can make no mistake about it. There was a moment as they, as they saw this work that they were astonished. They were moved. And honestly, I think you hear it in their writings over and over. As Peter references the beautiful and precious blood of Christ, as, as John speaks to us in chapter 6 about Jesus standing before the crowd and telling them that they have to drink of his blood. I, I, I think that you see it and hear it and how it, how it moved and motivated them. 
because they were so moved and motivated by this first and initial miracle. But see, Jesus, not only was he demonstrating his, his glory by revealing his authority, not only was he demonstrating his glory by, by demonstrating his ability and his duty, but he was also, he was also unveiling his identity. In verse 10, we learn that the man responsible, the one person responsible to make sure that the wine was there for the celebration was the bridegroom. And so when the, when the headmaster, not knowing where the wine came from, when the headmaster gets this wine, he calls the man he thinks is responsible. And he says, oh, so many people, they leave the, they, they bring the good wine first and they leave the sour wine, the bad wine for last. You know, after you've drunk on wine for a while, pretty soon your, your taste buds are numb and, and, and you're not really, your, your palate is not as refined and it's not as easy to taste the, the, the depth and the, and, and the different uh, levels of the wine. I don't know much about wine tasting. I don't, I'm not a fan of it, but I know that there's people that they, they sip on it and they slurp it and they breathe on it or I don't know, the wine breathes. I, I don't know, but... It just goes to show you what I know about wine. Last sip of wine I took, I tasted it. I was like, everybody was like, how good it was. It made me want to be sick right then. You know, I was like, oh, this is terrible. Why would you do this to yourself? Just give me my cup of coffee. Anyway, back to the sermon. Sorry. But the reality is, is that, is that Jesus is, is demonstrating something even in this the bridegroom wasn't responsible for this wine, this wonderful, beautiful, tasty wine. He was. And Jesus, he overshadows every bridegroom. Jesus is the great husband. And, and he loves his people and is, is intimately involved with his people, not just as a master and Lord, but as a husband is with his wife and i know some of you are thinking that's kind of scary he knows you he knows all of you there's nothing hidden from him he's close to you like no one has ever been close to you oh, the beauty of this of this of this story of this miracle that tells a parable that tells us a story and shows us our beautiful bridegroom, Jesus, he makes the best wine. And, and the beauty of this, I think that the, the most amazing part of this is that this first miracle that Jesus ever worked publicly prefigures the time and day when he will have his own wedding ceremony. And as he stands the bridegroom for his bride, the church, and we raise our glasses full of this great wine to celebrate our wonderful husband. Never to ever be separated from him again. To sit in his presence and enjoy his glory. Because the glory that we see in this story is just a, is just a smidgen. It's just a, an inkling of the depth of the glory of the, and the majesty of our great creator and savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, what a beautiful parable. Your husband is waiting for this celebration and longs for this celebration. And it leaves us in a place 
how are we going to respond? How are we going to react to this truth? To the fact that our husband, our bridegroom is waiting for us and he's looking forward to the feast. And he longs for us. Now the disciples, they saw and they were moved and they believed. Do you believe? Uh, what did you believe about Jesus before today? What do you believe about him now? How will you walk differently because of this? How special do you, do you see yourself now? Not special because you have any intrinsic value, but special because he's made you valuable. Does your love for him well up inside of you? Oh, he loves you. He's looking forward to celebrating with you. And one day, one day, at the wedding feast, we'll all get to raise our glasses together, full of the best wine. Oh, what a day that will be. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious and loving and good. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your work, for your glory, for letting us see just a glimpse of it. Father, help us now. Help us to see. Help us to know the glory of your Son. To see the glory, the glory of the one and only that we may believe, not just intellectually, but to trust it in the depths of our heart, that it motivates and moves us, that as we recognize his view of us, that we would be moved and enamored and in awe of our bridegroom. I just ask now, Holy Spirit, Use your words, the, the words of the Father, and burrow them down into the depths of our heart. Help us now to walk in light of it. It's all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.